Good evening, good morning, hello, wherever you are in the world. Uh, my name is Kevin Garber. You're listening to episode number 58 of the It's a Monkey podcast, Friday, the 27th of March, 2015. It is the last Friday before April um, as uh, we're heading, heading uh, into the second quarter of the year. The year is moving along very, very fast. We've got a great show lined up for you, as always. Uh, coming up later in the show, we'll be interviewing, interviewing Peter Cohen, who um, took a, uh, he's, he's a um, tech commentator, a mm-hmm. startup commentator, and he took a uh, visit to France, Paris, and uh, I'm pretty interested in startup culture, tech culture, and uh, he visited some startups there, and uh, he's got some interesting insights about the tech startup culture in uh in Paris and in France. We'll be talking to him a little bit later on in the show. Um, but as usual, we, s- we kick off with a lot of tech news. We lucky we work in an industry that moves at the rate of 6 million miles an hour. So there's <laughs> always lots and lots to talk about. And I'm very happy to say um, we've got a new co-host on the show. We rotate through the co-host, Sean Mathieu, we've had before, who's uh, one of the managed flutter developers in Cape Town, um, Chelsea Plowright, um, who we have, who's a senior account manager at Melamedia, um, managed flutter sister company. And um, first time on the podcast, we have Nick Barker, who's a senior developer and product lead at managed flutter. New role, so, uh, so fresh in, but Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It should be fun. Fun, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what uh, that's what your generation likes. Fun. No, we we hate it. <laughs> <laughs> We're over fun. Nick, let's get straight into it. Um, lots going on. Earlier this week, um, Facebook F8 conference, and um, I have to say that um, pretty interesting announcements at this week's conference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Facebook. Uh, even though they're, they're still like Google and that the majority of their revenue is still coming from advertising and at their core, they are an advertising company. They're sitting on enough money now that they're really starting to push into some super interesting things. And I love where they're going with VR. Like I've been waiting for years to someone, for someone to sort of pick it up and start championing it as their thing. But where they're going with Oculus is really, really cool. Did um, they make... Um We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the announcements um, shortly that they did make, but did they say anything about Oculus? I don't remember them saying at the F8 anything about Oculus. So they didn't say anything about Oculus per se, but there were a whole bunch of announcements that they made that sort of were going more, they're pushing more in the direction of, of bringing VR in as like a sort of more of a household item rather than some niche side project. I think one of the announcement was that um, it's a 3D type of video that's going to be compatible on Facebook. Oh, um, yeah. That's going to be totally mental. Like, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where essentially what, what they're doing is that if you have uh, like a 360 camera or some camera that can film more than just a static plane, um, they're going to make that type of video natively embeddable on Facebook. And then presumably if you're looking at Facebook through an Oculus VR headset or something like that, you'll be able to just look around at the different angles of the video just natively in line. And I have no idea how Facebook would work on a VR headset, but yeah, there. Well, the the sample that they had on their site, or on their Facebook page, um, didn't have, uh, didn't require headsets. Um, um, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure um, um, what type of technology, but they are gonna yeah, support some type of enhanced, 
spatial video. I mean, that was the one announcement. Um, the other announcement was they're going to make uh, Facebook videos embeddable, like on other sites like YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, you see a video you like, you want to put in a blog post, it gives you a little bit of code, you drop it in the blog post. Um, Facebook are going to allow the same thing. As, as you've probably noticed, if, uh, as everyone or most people probably listening to the show are, are big Facebook users, um, video has become a big thing on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, even Jimmy, who's... Uh, um, and I and he won't get offended if I say this. He's the re- <laughs> the resident dinosaur in the organization. And um, I was doing something on Facebook a few days ago, and I asked him to log into his account. And he tap tap, you know, pointed finger one by one, logged into his account. And as he logged in, the first thing he saw was an auto streaming video of something in nature. And and he's fo- and and it was the first thing that caught his eye. And it was like, oh wow, look at that, you know. So the autoplay videos on Facebook, they've made some really smart sort of little decisions one of the, one was the autoplay video i think one of the most amazing things that that who, whoever's uh, deciding the, the overall product vision at facebook whether it's zuck or someone else they know how to just push the boundaries just enough on what makes people feel comfortable like i, I remember when they first brought out the news feed and everyone was saying oh my god this is an invasion of privacy i feel so weird like i'm listening in on other people's conversations and now for most people now Facebook is the newsfeed. There's nothing really else to it apart from Messenger. And then when they brought out live video, people in stream, people were like, oh, this is so annoying. You know, it's, you know, like playing videos that I don't want to click on, I don't want to see. And now that's become like an integral part of the thing. It's just they're pushing it little by little, but people are taking up the features really well, I think. And I think it's a great lesson for people that are, uh, you know, um, entrepreneurs and CEOs and CTOs and and product people that um, often you do know you do know the pr- product better than your users it's not to say to test and take feedback but sometimes you've got to be bold and visionary um, and gutsy and go for it and back yourself because um, you know people hate change inherent inherently it's just you know I've got the saying that uh, people love novelty but they hate change <laughs> you know we call we funny creatures humans so so they just they, they, they don't like change. So, um, yeah, they've made some fantastic decisions. So, so you're going to be able to take a, a Facebook video and Im- embed it in another site. That was the, um, the other thing that came out of F8. And also they're turning Messenger into a platform. Yeah. It's so, so Messenger is this, um, you know, um, app on Facebook that you've probably been forced in a way to install <laughs> on, your, on your phone yeah. where you instant message sort of through your Facebook account and they are going to allow developers to build on top of that. Yeah, so the really interesting thing with that is that I have a feeling that they probably would not have had to do that or would not have wanted to do that if Apple had been a little bit more like Google with their policy for customization, but Apple's just got this absolute stranglehold on the App Store and what you can and can't do. So a lot of companies now are moving into having little mini app stores within the apps themselves so they can have a little bit more control over the market and what goes on. I think um, it's going to be interesting to see what people can actually think of to build on top of a messenger because people have tried many times before to build all of this novelty on top of just sending messages. But in the end, it often just comes back down to people just want to send messages and that's it. 
It'll be yeah, because of course Facebook has now they've got Instagram, they got WhatsApp, mm. and they got Messenger. So they've got they've got a nice little suite of products. I I love um, seeing what people do on on platforms. I mean, I absolutely. S- I sent the team a, a note earlier today on I am a feed about Pebble releasing the SDK for the new Pebble watch. I don't know if it's a new SDK or updated or um, so they'll be allowed to um, enabling people to develop apps for the for the Pebble watch. Um, of course, what really launched Twitter's growth was their great open API and people coming up with all crazy use cases. Absolutely. I'm, I'm totally behind that. I think that there have been very few cases where a company that's actually had the resources to support an API has done anything you know less than very well from themselves for themselves as a result of opening up their api or providing plugins or whatever that people can build spotify did so well uh making that little mini plugin app store that they have inside spotify for people building stuff because like um i'm pretty sure they actually purchased a bunch of little plugins off the developers who bought them and integrated them into the core like over time as they did that like it just worked really really well for them and there's two schools of thoughts about as an entrepreneur developing on a platform i mean jason calacanis he's he was burnt um by by building on on youtube and um you know he's always he's always going on about don't build on a platform but um you know, there's there's always pros and cons. If you're building on a successful platform, you're leveraging their users, you're leveraging mm. um, so much. But yes, essentially, it's their business, and they can take left turns and do all sorts of things. Oh, it's it's a wonderful decision for the core business. Sometimes not so good for the people who are actually building the products on top of it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 risky. Um, it's risky, but business is always risky. I think the only difference with the building on top of a platform, and I chat chat about this to to Jimmy sometimes when we're bouncing around um, some ideas, is the only difference psychologically about building on a platform is that the risk is visible. Mm. A lot of bu- a lot of business risk is invisible yeah. you have a gut feeling that there's risk there but you can't really see it when you're building on a platform you know the risk is visible you can wake up tomorrow and whatever platform you're building on they can just block your access they've gone bankrupt yeah. <laughs> they've decided whatever you, yeah. you, you name it i mean uh you, you know yeah you know and and that your core business is ripped up but um in terms of building a platform yourself from scratch very very hard to do and a lot riskier just in the inherent nature of it it allows you to at least plan for the risk though exactly right yeah. exactly right so um you know managed flutters built on twitter and um if you are a long time listener to this podcast and are a user of managed flutter you'll notice that you, you'll know that um you, you know twitter sort of um trimmed some of their API access <laughs> to people in the ecosystem that that caused a bit of a, a, a challenge a couple of years ago, but we've navigated around it and our users are happy and, and we happy. So um, I still, I, I mean, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, Google Plus, I mean, Google Plus essentially has, Google has sort of broken up Google Plus for parts and it's sort of, I always just wish I could see what would happen if they would just open up an API on that. Just a yeah. super open API. Everyone would want to build on Google, you know? Like, like we all use Google, we sit in it, it would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, whoever made the decision to force all of the YouTube accounts, force everyone on YouTube to upgrade to a Google Plus account or force transfer all of those YouTube accounts into Google Plus accounts, that was just a... <laughs> yeah. That was a death sentence for them, basically. That was, yeah, that was a terrible decision. Yeah, so uh, Google Plus, 
Anyway, so that that was Facebook F8. Uh, oh, there was one one sure. extra thing actually, which is really interesting was they're moving into doing real time comments. I saw that, but that the real time comments. So that's um, ex- explain to me. So if you like, if have and they gave Huffington Post as an example, right? That's if Huffington Post shares an article on Facebook and you comment on the Facebook post that gets shared on the Huffington Post article on the Huffington Post site? So essentially it's a twofold thing. Firstly, all of the comment sections on all of the, wherever you share that article, all of the comment sections are linked. And not only that, it's it's actually live, like really live. Like the comments will actually appear and update and the likes will accrue in front of your face while you're looking at it. So you don't have to refresh the page to get more additions to the comments essentially i have no idea how they're going to get it working with sorting and and you know like actually filtering out the top comments and stuff like but that then but then but then the website owners do they have to have facebook comments as their commenting system on their site i mean i assume so yeah, yes. right okay so i know like i think like TechCrunch uses facebook commenting system there's a bit but a lot of people use discus for example yeah so if you use discus then it's not yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that where Facebook is moving, um, like, I mean, my my feeling on, on the situation overall is that uh, a lot of people don't understand that in order to gather data on users for advertising, essentially, you need to have a little foot in the door on as many possible websites as you can. So the Facebook like button was the first step in that direction. People embedding the Facebook like button on their page means that Facebook can see that you've been to that site. And essentially by making all the comments embeddable, by making the videos embeddable, by making everything linked and everything really easy, uh, it's gonna be great for the people who are actually using that software, but at the same time, it allows Facebook to just get more and more of their claws into into more and more different web services and apps, just so they can have greater visibility for their advertising space, essentially. Yeah, and people get confused. Um, you know, they think uh, Facebook users are the customers, but actually, Facebook users are the product. Absolutely. <laughs> so you Absolutely. are y- you, Mister and Mrs. and Miss Facebook user. You are the product. You are not the customer. Uh, the advertisers are the customer, and um, Facebook announced recently it had uh, what was it? I can't remember. Was it four hundred thousand advertisers or something? Anyway, oh, so I can't remember the exact number. Yeah, yeah. They, they announced they or four million or some um, was some big number. So they they the customers. So um, um, anyway, check out Facebook um, F8 if you want more details. Just Google it. I mean, Facebook made some other interesting announcements this week. They've developed some some um, solar-powered plane that can... <laughs> wow, can, I didn't can, hear about that. Yeah, the, uh, Mark Zuckerberg just put it on his page uh, last night. Um, some solar-powered plane that can uh, hover for 40 days or something above an area at 40,000 feet and beam down um, internet access. Oh, right, yeah. yeah so part of the internet.org um, initiative. If you're from Australia, you will have seen the internet.org billboards everywhere. They're running a huge marketing campaign. Yeah, I'm, for I'm it trying here to work moment. out why they have, or why they're marketing it in Australia. I mean, I just I Australia has a huge, absolutely huge um, penetration of, of Facebook, uh, percentage-wise among. It's under- one of the highest. Yeah, I understand that, but why are they trying to raise the visibility of internet.org in, in Australia? Because they have a huge amount of money and Facebook. Uh, because of 
privacy concerns has attracted some negative publicity in the past and i i so it's a pr yeah, it's a goodwill thing yeah ah, absolutely okay. yeah. is that what it is yeah i'm sure a lot of people yeah because uh, yeah, i've seen right in our office in the cbd sort of just across the street they've been billboards on the internet.org so i was mm. interested anyway that's facebook uh, f8 conference check it out if you're interested lots of impressive things and of course the share price has been doing very well yeah <laughs> on facebook i think it hit a new high of about 86 dollars um i'll check that share price and um disclaimer as i've said before i own a few facebook shares so uh, just in case you think i'm trying to uh, talk the facebook share up i probably <laughs> i probably am you know you might affect it by <laughs> a thousandth of one cent exactly right yeah so it hits um i mean it's sitting at the moment at about um 83 or so but i think it hits a high of about 86 so uh, doing very very well i mean a year ago it was only at about 62 so um yeah that's uh, doing well um they're making some smart decisions so uh, uh they're honestly i am not a fan of all of the privacy invasion that goes on in advertising personally but you got to hand it to them like they're doing incredibly well with the way that they've they've been doing advertising recently. Oh, their product decision and their algorithm i'd love to get insight into their algorithm i'm just curious to reverse engineer their algorithm and um yeah, and look, you know, Twitter, I mean, Twitter's, um, you know, launched Periscope yesterday, which is, um, you know, the live streaming app. The interesting thing, Nick, is Periscope, I mean, I used to use a product called Quick, which which was funded, one of the funders was Mark Andreessen, who I, I mentioned a lot on this podcast, ultimately got bought by Skype, you know, Microsoft through Skype. Mm. Um, but, I mean, this was probably as long as eight years ago or something yeah. where I remember wow. even on my Nokia right i was i had a quick app on my nokia and i would live real time and it was even integrated into my facebook at that stage and my wow. facebook <laughs> friends would get notified they'd get pinged on facebook and they'd, i'd be pushing a live stream um you know as You're long ago way ahead ago, of the curve. <laughs> way, you know and so when all of the fuss came out about meerkat which is the similar product to periscope and periscope i was like wow, I didn't know this is becoming a thing. And it just shows you, again, if you sort of want to be entrepreneurial, you know, things come in waves and cycles and it's, it's about timing. Yep, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Quick, Quick never really got off the ground. They sold it for a decent amount. But, um, I mean, it was nothing like it's happening now. There's a confluence of technologies and bandwidth that's just making it uh, ripe. And it's just all the buzz. It's South by Southwest. It was Meerkat, Meerkat. Actually dropped the founder of Meerkat Align. Um, when uh, they, they got they got uh, cut off by the Twitter social graph, and yeah. I said, uh, "Yeah, you know, building on platforms, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it goes." So I've been in touch with him, uh, but um, and Twitter bought Periscope for as much as a hundred million dollars, which yeah. good on those guys. It's not a very hasn't been around for long. I mean, it, it was just a combination of a bunch of different factors that actually made it usable at the moment like firstly it's 4g or lte making streaming outdoors in random places really easily accessible uh the fact that smartphones now all have like really really fast dedicated chips in them that just process video so it's possible to actually stream in 720p and film in 720p at the same time even on you know like three three-year-old phones it's, yeah it's really amazing yeah yeah, and, and the fact that, like, um, 
Twitter actually has the critical mass to actually get a public streaming platform like that off the ground. Like, if you haven't tried Periscope yet, it only came out just recently. It's only in iOS at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, if, if you remember, if you were using Twitter during the very, very early days, Periscope is sort of like that now. It's just the absolute wild west out there at the moment. Just random people are filming totally just nonsensical random stuff and and you know they'll get 50 to 100 concurrent viewers and people just you know commenting away everyone's um you know where this is going to be huge in the celebrity space because uh, absolutely because twitter still owns the celebrity space the real-time space jason calacanis talks about this a lot where the video in the celebrity space because apparently youtube you know doesn't share the monetization as you know as well as they could and if twitter get this right and the celebrities you, you can imagine you can you can imagine the type of um you know visibility some of these you know the beavers of the world and stuff well twitter um if he lives i mean he could live he could live stream anything yeah absolutely you know and and if and if they share the monetization around that and so i, I think yeah interesting wave of uh activity going to happen well twitter's got to compete with instagram because in terms of uh like non-polished um home sort of homemade pictures and videos and stuff that celebrities film and take themselves instagram just owns that space but are they are they using video a lot on instagram a little they don't use it like people don't use it in the same way just because it's you know it's not live like periscope has the whole live thing going for it. I don't know if they're going to release something through Facebook um, for live video, either through Instagram or Facebook itself at some point. I have to say, I love photos. I love social media. I don't know why Instagram bores me a bit compared (laughs) to Twitter. Like, it's just, I see everyone, like, you know, like if I come out of a yoga class or something, you know, and I sit next to someone, first thing, they fire up their phone onto Instagram. Mm. And it just... I, I use it a bit. You can follow me. I'm ke underscore ga, and um, I like photos. But somehow, uh, maybe it's just the way I process. I, I prefer the Twitter text feeds. I even prefer the old school Twitter where you didn't have these inline images and things like that. So maybe, maybe I'm not the typical use case. Isn't it amazing that we have such a choice of like very what are honestly very highly calibrated <laughs> subtleties yeah. between yeah. yeah and there's probably room for probably room for even more oh of you, course yeah. you know as the as as it matures um anyway we 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 digress the, the other story i wanted to talk about which is sort of interesting we don't talk about microsoft a lot on this uh, podcast oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but microsoft are, are getting rid of the internet explorer brand which is quite a big deal. It's been around for a long time. It's and I, huge, yeah. And I believe they're getting rid of um, the the actual Microsoft, uh, the Internet Explorer engine as well, and they're sort of starting from scratch yes. because even they are tired of, of the legacy issues. So I think if you're an enterprise, you'll be able to hold on to Internet Explorer for a while. But for everyone else, you're going to be pushed into Pro- Project Spartan, which is the code name for their um, new browser. But uh, it will have a proper... Uh, brand name soon when they so uh if you're a gamer of course you'll recognize that if you're not um what microsoft has been doing recently that you might not have realized is uh because microsoft owns xbox they have been borrowing a number of uh sort of trademarks i guess from the halo series so cortana the name of the windows uh siri competitor is the name of the ai like the artificial 
intelligence in right. in Halo. She's a female AI character. And Spartan is another reference to Halo. So <laughs> they've been borrowing quite heavily from that recently in terms of code names. I guess it sounds cool, though. Yeah, I didn't, I'm not a gamer, so um, I, I didn't even cross my mind. But you, you, you geeks, I don't know. <laughs> <it's just laughs> uh, we're just young, man. I was, I, was, um, I was telling some people the other day, like uh, someone... Someone was telling me the other day, oh, you know, like I saw this this uh, this group of like three 12-year-old girls and they were on the bus and they were all playing Minecraft on their phones. And I had to explain like um, gaming is not divided on gender yeah. in the way that it was even in my generation. Yeah. Like, I'm 24 and, and even when I was growing up, there was still a big split on yeah. like heavily, you know towards males in terms of in terms of gaming but i'm i'm telling you it's going way back the other direction right? now yeah absolutely and what do you think's driving that different games coming out yeah mobile th- mobile's probably pushing it a lot i think it's finally um it's finally sort of the the industry is big enough that there's there's a nice diversity among stuff that you can actually do that appeals to a really huge audience but not only that like people who have grown up with it now there's no social stigma around it like i know when i was growing up like it was sort of weird for girls to be playing video games was you it? know what i mean it was just you know a bizarre social thing i don't know right. why it turned out like that but that was just sort of what people thought games were generally associated with being a geeky male yeah, yeah. so yeah but things are things are changing they're changing really really quickly <laughs> i was on the train in sydney the other day and um when I passed through the station where a lot of tourists get on King's Cross Station and there was a sort of elderly couple and I, I can't remember if they were from America or the UK and everyone in the carriage was staring at their mobile phone and he said to his wife, he was like, he was like what, what are they all doing, <laughs> you know? And she shrugged and she said, I don't know. I think I think they play games on them. <laughs> uh, and it did it, knew, yeah. it did sort of look ridiculous, you know, when you take a step back and I mean it's 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 compelling. I remember even before the days of mobiles just when laptops were coming, you know, cheap enough to a lot of people have a friend of mine said you know, she was having problems with her husband just being staring at the screen the whole day and she and he said she said to me her husband just says it's it's so compelling. It's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing with the mobile, you know. And um, There's an, an amazing photo. Um, you know, every generation, you know, people say, oh, you know, kids don't read enough or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like it changes, of course, as the, tech, as the tech changes. There's a great photo comparison, though, with um, uh, between, I think the photo was taken in 2013 or something. And every single person in this New York train carriage is on their phone, right? And then there's a photo taken in uh, like, 1923 i think and just everyone's every reading the newspaper. every single person is reading yeah the newspaper. i've seen that yeah. i've seen that one <laughs> yeah it's very good that being said uh, you know one of my favorite cafes um to hang out at and work at sometimes is in bondi secondhand bookstore cafe and it's obviously very progressive parents and that but um there's a lot of parents that come with their kids there and these kids of all ages literally from like you know 18 months to 12 sit there and these kids read books Wow, that's so, pretty crazy. So uh, I'm, I'm always, I always like jar and like, oh wow, there's, there's, there's a I keep reading a you, book. That is the edge of the bell curve, right there. I think like. so. <laughs> I was chatting to the one mum once. She said, yeah, she doesn't even have a TV or computer at home, and so it's, it's probably a very, a very fringe, yes. um, <laughs> fringe dwelling. Um, so, so yeah, that's um, so Internet Explorer is gonna going to be the brand's going to be going away. I mean, Microsoft um, at this conference where they announced it, they said it's time. 
they're going to try and make themselves loved again, you know? I yeah, mean, so essentially the overarching strategy, I think, is that Microsoft is just trying to um, generate or, or regenerate some of some developer goodwill because uh, a lot of a number of Microsoft products have sort of been the bane <laughs> of developers in different industries for a long time and they've realized now that it's actually hurting them in the long run because you know obviously less developer goodwill means less people less good developers wanting to work at microsoft um, um but boy have they made inroads into the corporate w world oh microsoft. absolutely i mean they just they just make money on license this and license that so i'll take my hat off to them really you've heard just recently so they've um they're, they're making a huge push into open sourcing the whole of the dotnet stack which is going to be a really really big move for them so essentially uh the microsoft tech that powers the internet that's running on microsoft products they're moving into making that totally open source um and that's going to be so much better including things like um sql server yeah i'm not sure what they've done with it um i i'm not 100% sure in the specifics, but they've been, you know, putting out press release after press release, you know, we're friendly with the open source community and we want to work yeah. together and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they finally shut off support for Windows XP last year, which was another big, another great thing. And, and now they're finally ditching Internet Explorer um, altogether. Web developers basically around the world, that was a collective sigh of release. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. it's... Um, Look, as companies get bigger, you know, and I think about, I think about Facebook like this as well. It's it's as companies get bigger, it's it's people get cynical, and it's even Google. It's 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 hard to to stay fresh and exciting and 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 nimble and and um, but um, kudos to them though. I'm yeah, glad that Microsoft not, they're is. They're not giving up. Yeah. You know? Well, and and I mean they got a great new CEO. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean. You know, which is I, th I think I think you know Steve Barmer was sort of part of the old oh, school. Fortunately, that era yeah. is over now. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's just it was a different time and a different place, and you need you know leadership and vision. And um, anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and Nick Barker on the. Um, it's a Monkey Podcast, episode number 58. You can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. You can email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com. Um, if you want, you can leave a comment on itsamonkey.com. If you listen, we um, love getting comments about the show. Um, we love hearing from you. We know you're listening. A special welcome if you are a Managed Flitter user. Um, while you are using Managed Flitter and listening to this, welcome. Thanks for your support. Nick's going to be the one that's going to be pushing forward on a lot of interesting new product changes. And we've got a mobile version coming up um, in a little while. And we've got all sorts of exciting things oh, planned. Yeah. So um, Nick hasn't been sleeping and, uh, <laughs> you know, he's been coding. Yeah, coding. Been in the office. Kevin's <laughs> been cracking the whip the whole time. Yeah, yeah so... Um, Exciting things. Um, I mean, Managed Flood has been going now, you know, since 2010. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a mature product in many ways. And uh, we're looking forward to um, just seeing what we can do with it. Um, we've, we, uh, we're a small team. So we, um, we probably, yeah, you, you know, there's, th there's a few things we'd like to move fast at. Yeah, it's going to get a fresh coat of paint soon, though, which uh, is going to Yeah, a very fresh coat of paint. So uh, stay in touch. Um, we're going to take a short break, and after the uh, break, we're going to be—I'll be chatting to Peter Cohen, who went to Paris, France. Talk to him a little bit about the French tech ecosystem, French startups, and everything um, 
French, so stick with us. <laughs> the It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. We are episode number 58. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, which I know many of you are, um, you know that I'm quite interested in uh, startup culture, tech culture, um, culture in general. And um, someone we've had on the podcast before, Peter Cohen, I get his emails regularly and uh, he, he publishes uh, interesting bits and pieces. And um, one of Peter's latest articles was about uh, the French startup scene. So uh, I read it with interest. So I thought uh, I'll get Peter back on the line. He's been on the podcast before. Um, and Peter's a management consultant, teacher, venture capitalist, author, blogger, um, based in uh, Massachusetts. And this article was on, uh, Peter, I believe Telegram is actually, it is a Massachusetts, telegram.com, it is a Massachusetts news website. Is that correct? It's a, a newspaper um, for the second largest city in Massachusetts, which is called Worcester, Massachusetts. Great. And uh, your article was making the startup scene in Paris. Um, so uh, you recently just came back. It's, uh, so it's, you, you took an actual trip with some, some business students um, to Paris to see what, uh, what's going on in tech startups there. Yes. Um, I have uh, four of these programs um, where I take students to different cities around the world, and we have uh, uh, two classes, sort of regular school classes before. Uh, then we go uh, to the place and we visit with startups and venture capitalists and accelerators and uh, professors of entrepreneurship. Uh, and then we uh, come back and we work on consulting projects for companies that are in the uh, accelerators that we meet with. And... Um I mean, you notice, uh, you, you make the comment that, uh, you know, France was ve very much into the investment banking and corporate world until the, the crisis happened, which they were, you, you know, the 2008 crisis. And then things shifted up. Um, what, what's happened since the crisis in, in Paris and France? Well, I found it very interesting. This is sort of a phenomenon that I've noticed around the world, but more, perhaps more pronounced in Paris is that um, people who go to the best schools in Paris, uh, are no longer just funneling themselves into uh, jobs as in the government or uh, in uh, banks or uh, consulting firms. Uh, now they're beginning to see that, that cannot, that's not necessarily the most secure place to be anymore. And not only that, but a number of people we talked to said that they don't find it particularly inspiring to work in these large organizations. So they're looking for uh, more meaning and more control over their careers, and so more of them are, are, are not taking that path of going to a large organization, and they are starting companies. And um, what's the, the early stage VC um, situation? I mean, um, you know, obviously the U.S., the, the coasts are, are renowned for having the healthy and established and mature sort of uh, early stage funding situations. What's Paris and France like? 
Um, I would say it's not particularly strong. Um, and I think the biggest reason it's not particularly strong is that uh, there is a, uh, a huge fear of failure uh, among people in France and that if you fail, uh, you're kind of uh, blacklisted uh, from working again. Uh, and so you know, the fear of failure is really high uh, and that fear of failure means that um, people who would put money into a startup are afraid of losing their money and they're afraid of uh, they're more afraid of, of losing their money and losing their opportunities in the future than they are of uh, missing out on a, an opportunity. So uh, what a lot of the startups uh, we met with do is that they either have their own money or they go to the U.S. to raise money. It's, um, yeah, it's a little, a little bit ironic, I guess. I mean, that, that fear of failure is an interesting point um, because... Um, I guess, you know, and we suffer a little bit from it in Australia and, and you know, there's something here called the tall poppy syndrome, which I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with. No, I haven't with. heard that. That well, sounds really interesting, though. Yeah, well, it, it, it sort of comes from, I guess, Australia's working class roots and egalitarian sort of nature where, where um, if you're too successful, um, you know, society cuts you down and brings you back down to earth. So you, you, you can't be seen as... As, as pulling too far ahead of the crowd. So. Well, it's, it's very tr interesting because you see that in Japan as well. There's this expression in Japan, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it goes something like, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds very much like the, that. And, and, and it is shifting, particularly in Sydney, and you know, we are moving on from that. But there's still, you, you know, one of the strong points of Australians' culture is a, a, a very big middle class and egalitarianism and, and a humility, which in, in a way pulls a little bit against that individualism and, and going for the blue sky, um, you know, swinging for the fences type culture, which which I know uh, the U.S. Is, is pretty famous for. Yes, uh, although I will say that uh, you know, the, the very same Worcester Telegram and Gazette that I write for is in a city that's about 40, 40, minutes, 40 miles away from Cambridge, uh, where MIT and Harvard are, where you have sure. all this risk-taking. But Worcester is very risk-averse. So the idea, I think a lot of people think the entire U.S. is, is uh, people who swing for the fences and, and take big chances. But... Um, in fact, uh, it's only a few coastal cities where that's really prevalent, and there's lots of parts of the U.S. Uh, where there's a, sort of a similar level of conservatism. You made an interesting point about developers, that uh, the French developers um, are good, but they, they um, you know, don't iterate fast enough because they want to get things just right. So the culture actually penetrates as far down um, into the, the sort of work culture. Well, it's very, I found that very interesting as well um, because I wrote a, my first book um, was called The Technology Leaders and it was about how America's most profitable high-tech companies innovate their way to success. And one of the points that I made in that book was that um, back when I wrote the book, which was in the, I guess, mid-1990s, there were still quite a few engineers in the U.S. who were like that as well, who basically... Uh, were very reluctant to release their uh, products to the world until they were comfortable that they would impress their other engineering colleagues. And they didn't really have much concern about what um, the market would say. They didn't really care too much about the customers. They didn't really want the customers to see it until it was ready. Um, and over the since I wrote that book, and I, in, in the book I kind of wrote about 
the idea of changing from a sort of a relay race approach where the engineer will hand the baton over to the marketing people only when they're ready to more of a rugby or scrum approach where you have uh, people from all different disciplines working together. Um, so it's a long answer to your question, which is that the U.S. used to be like France's uh, now, uh, but it has changed over the last couple of decades to be more um, approaching using that sort of scrum approach where people work in, in teams, in cross-functional teams to develop products, using prototyping and getting feedback from the market. Uh, of course, the danger of having uh, engineers who never release the product is that if you have a limited amount of cash in the company, uh, you run out of cash before you get your first cu uh, customer. And um, we've often spoken about on this podcast how getting the balance between over-engineering and under-engineering, that is the art of the startup, particularly tech startups, because over-engineering can kill your product just as much as under-engineering it can. Yep. Well, and another fact that um, I found really um, interesting in your article, that there's 500,000 new startups a year in France. I mean, that's, that, that is a huge number. Yes. Um, well, this was a number that um, I, I don't really have official government statistics, but I'll take I'll, the person who told it to me is a very successful uh, entrepreneur, uh, Charles Bigbeder, who I had, trouble, I had trouble pronouncing his name, but uh, he's the one who said this, that uh, you know, there's 500,000 uh, of these created a year, but he said that an awful lot of them fail. Um, which is, uh, I guess, is normal. Uh, I guess is guess normal. But um, I'll just I'll just assume that um, you know this is a, this is a correct figure. I think there's that means that there's quite a lot of startups uh, there. And when we were there, uh, I think uh, only a few of them really kind of stuck in my mind um, as being you know fairly amazing. Uh, so I was quite glad to have a, have a chance to meet with them. Um, but I think there's probably a lot more. I mean, to put it in perspective, Australia, I think, has got about two to three million um, small and medium-sized businesses in total. Uh -huh. So, um, I mean, we only have a population of 20, 25 million. But um, so 500,000 is a, <laughs> a pretty decent number. Uh, and, I mean, Peter, the other interesting factor, which a lot of people, probably the younger people, don't realize listening to this podcast, is that... Um, France was probably used to be the most online country in the world because of something called the was it the Minitel? Forget yes, the actual Minitel. name. So I mean, yeah, the, the Minitel the, the Minitel was was for lack of a better um, way of putting it was a um, was a private internet and the French were doing online banking and online dating before most of the rest of the world even heard about the internet. You're probably talking about 80s over here where they were all across it. Yes, um, I, I remember that, and I don't really know any, any of the details of how it worked. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was sort of a, a service that was heavily supported by the government rather than something by, that was done by a private company. Uh, but when we were over there, uh, nobody talked about it at all. Um, so I don't, I don't know what that means, but um, we definitely never, nobody mentioned it at all. Nobody yeah, interesting. Look, I mean, I, I, no doubt it's, it's totally been usurped by the Internet, but I, you know... I, my understanding when I first visited France in the mid-90s or so, everyone just had such a comfort and familiarity by doing everything online. And um, I guess what a lost opportunity for France, you know, not to 
not to sort of, they must have had some interesting skills and even some, some cultural um, acceptance of the technology that really could have been useful to leapfrogging into, into some, you know, French dot-com era that, that just didn't translate for a variety of reasons, but uh, quite, quite a lost opportunity there. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I agree. And I, I think um, one of the things that was very clear to me was that there are a lot of uh, barriers to startups um, in Paris and in France. And um, there was a very large list of them that really made me think that it's a miracle that there are any startups at all. I mean, for example, um, the tax system is really bad as far as startups. What they were saying is that you have to start paying taxes before you even have any revenues. Uh, and then the other thing they said was, there were a lot of things, but another thing they said was, it's harder to fire an employee than it is to get divorced. Mm. Um, the capital gains tax, if you actually happen to be successful and make a profit, uh, they wanted to make it 60%. Uh, I don't know what it is now, but uh, that seems really high. Uh, and so it kind of discourages people from taking investment. Then there's the social kind of sanction against uh, entrepreneurship, uh, very high real estate prices, uh, certainly in Paris. Um, there's, there's tons of, uh, of obstacles and, of course, a, a very limited venture capital uh, industry there. Uh, so it's just it's amazing. Uh, I, when, I, when I first was thinking about going there, I thought, well, you know, France is the place that invented the term entrepreneur. It's a French word. Um, but I don't think they have much in the way of entrepreneurship. And as far as I knew, uh, all the best French entrepreneurs would go to the U.S. because it was a much more hospitable environment for starting companies. But uh, I was doing some research and found out that there are quite a few uh, successful startups in Paris. So I kind of think of them as overcoming really long odds in order to uh, achieve entrepreneurial success. And of course, I mean, the French have got a fantastic history of, of good engineering and good developers, and they certainly... It's only got all the smarts, but it just shows you how important the sort of the lattice, uh, the, and, and in my opinion, this is really the role of government, you know, the role of government is, is to have the right lattice for things to, to grow on in a, and, and, and flourish, and it sounds like they've got a lot wrong. I mean, how, how do you tax a company before they've made money? How does, I mean, that just sounds, that just sounds almost like feudalism or something. Exactly. Um. And uh, this uh, guy that I mentioned before, Charles Big Bidder, uh he had started a, a basically a, a, a discount stock brokerage firm uh, and sold that for billions of dollars. And then he went on to start um, a, a utility uh, and sold that for billions of dollars. Very successful uh, entrepreneur who is now running for office or creating a party to try to gain political power, which would... Uh, end a lot of this high tax, these high taxes and make it easier to fire employees and kind of create a more uh, business-friendly play, a culture uh, in, in France. Uh, I don't know how far he's going to get with that, but um, he, there is definitely a, a, a certain number of people in, in France who think that um, this regime is just ridiculous and it needs to change. And, I get, and on the firing thing, I mean, France comes from a very strong socialist background. I know... Um you know, the joke is, you know, that there's a, there's a strike every week against something. And, yes. Um, does it make you, um, did it make you appreciate the United States more after having uh, visited? Well, I, I really uh, love being in the United States. Um, 
but um, I think France is better than the United States in some ways that I find very pleasing, such as it has better food. Um, the um, museums are fantastic. Walking around Paris is, is spectacular. Um, and I personally got a huge kick out of um, being able to speak French with the people, and they would speak French back to me. Um, but ha having said all that, um, I don't think I would want to live there um, because uh, I have so much more. I feel like I have a lot more freedom uh, in, in the U.S. And uh, I just feel like I can pretty much do what I want. And uh, I, I think that that's really wonderful. I think, um, and I'm a huge fan of the U.S. I'm going to be there in a couple of months again. I usually spare, have one or two trips a year. So, um, I mean, I think... I think the pioneering spirit in the U.S., particularly I haven't spent any time in the, the middle of the country by admission, and I'd like to one day see it all. But the pioneering spirit, um, you know, you can reach out and, and touch possibility in places like New York and, uh, you know, the Bay Area and even L.A., and uh, I, I find it very unique like that. But I agree, you know, Paris is a fantastic city. What are the biggest exports in France? I mean, tourism must be one of its biggest exports, I would imagine, if not the biggest. Yes, uh, you, you raise questions that I don't know the answer to, but um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they're, they're really big in luxury goods. Um, oh, I don't right. know if it's, how big it is as a percentage of their total economy, but they're, they're big in, in the luxury goods, LVMH, and you, know, you go down Champs-Élysées and there's all these luxury stores that are based in Paris. Uh, another thing that I had, I've done consul consulting work with a company that many people haven't heard of called Schlumberger, which is in the oil services business. That's one of their, their biggest, uh, and that's a real testament to their engineering ability. Another thing that they're really good at is that they have um, uh, mechanical engineering design software. They have a company called Dassault. So there, there's, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, engineering talent reflected in some of these uh, successful publicly traded companies that are really world leaders. Uh, as far as what percentage they are of exports, I wouldn't really know. Um, I don't really know. Um, I probably could find out. But um, what impresses me the most are these uh, companies like Schlumberger and Dassault that um, uh, have this techno technological skill that, that is world class. Okay, I've just managed to pull up France's top 10 experts, uh, exports. Um, number one is machines, engines, and pumps, so it's, which is 12% of the total export. Number two is aircraft and spacecraft. That must be uh, Airbus. Airbus, yeah, and that, that's sort of a joint venture between a couple of European countries, I guess. Yeah, and uh, which is interesting, I believe the biggest exporter in the U.S. is Boeing, so that's that's quite interesting. That ties up there as well. Number, oh, they're expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The number three is vehicles. Number four is electronic equipment. Number five is pharmaceuticals. Number six is oil, which that's quite interesting. I didn't know France had that much oil, but they obviously do. Um, Number seven is plastics. Number eight, of course, alcoholic beverages. How could we forget? Um, number nine is medical and technical equipment. And number 10 is perfumes and cosmetics. So interesting that um, tourism doesn't rate in there, which uh, is quite surprising, uh, at least according to this list. Well, there's a lot of tourism. I'm not sure if they would count it as an export. Um, maybe, mm. maybe it's a matter of accounting. Uh, but I definitely think that um, they... Uh, have a lot of there's a lot of tourists there in yeah. Paris particularly yeah it was yeah. great terrific Peter Cohen uh, venture capitalist blogger author um, I will put the link up to your article making the startup scene in Paris as always I actually think Peter you're the the most interviewed person on our podcast I think this is your number three so really uh, that's wow. your that's your claim I'm honored to, 
that's your claim to fame. We should send you a little a little plaque or something. But um, yeah, I, w- I would love a plaque. I I, I don't have enough plaques. <laughs> <laughs> and, Thank you so much. Uh, and um, no doubt we'll talk to you again. I enjoy your articles that you keep sending through. People can. We'll put a link up to your Twitter account. People can follow you on Twitter and get onto your email list. So uh, thanks for waking up so early, Boston time. Um, and thank you for staying up so late in Australia. That's okay. It's Friday night, so not, okay. not too bad. Thanks, Peter. No worries. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. Bye bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com for a free trial. Um, yeah, interesting um, about the French tech startup scene. I mean, I mean, what's so interesting about startup? culture is that startup culture is obviously layered upon the culture of the, the country and um, a little bit like Australia the French culture doesn't um, applaud failure you know and that's where I think America always wins the game you know whereas as giving it a go and failing is uh, almost a badge of honor whereas in some other cultures failing is is people get this glee and joy and just see well yep you failed so um you're not as good as you think you are and you know that's the end of that the interesting thing is though although um people especially in the valley uh, are big on you know like i you know i failed i i had seven bankrupt businesses before i succeeded whatever the 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 thing that they do always emphasize is though then I succeeded. Yeah, you don't hear about the people who went bankrupt seven times and then stayed bankrupt. Oh, of course, the it doesn't make it, their lives it doesn't make a good story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make a good story, and yeah. it's also it's easy to say these things. You know, like it's easy to say, ah, oh, you know, don't be scared of failure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it's it's evolutionary wise. We we're not wired to fail. Oh no, and we're not raised yeah. like that. The school system doesn't support that yeah, kind of thing. It's just it's really hard. It's I hard mean, to an, deal with. Yeah. An interesting book to read if you are interested in startup culture and and uh, you know how they vary from country to country is startup nation which is about an analysis of why israel is so successful at tech startups and one of the interesting thing about why they're so successful of startups and they've got is that they have a risk of being able to pro- uh, sorry a culture of being able to process risk mm. right because they're living in a very volatile environment Everyone there is that's not a professional army. Everyone's forced to go to the army and be able to process risk and deal with risk. And then there's other elements like, um, you know, you form camaraderie and you form startups often with people that you were in the army with. And um, the risk side of things um, people are comfortable with, whereas in Australia it's a very static, stable country. People, you know, the corporate environment's very appealing because it's, um, you know, not risky. So... It's, it's daunting, you, you, you know, if you're in a country where you're exposed to war, well, a startup's easy compared to <laughs> war, you know, whereas well, in Australia, well, a startup's really hard compared to a 200K corporate job of a guaranteed money, you know, so the relativity kicks in. But it's a really interesting book, Startup Nation. I've tried to get the author once or twice. Um, on the, I haven't been successful, but um, I'll try again. So, yeah, obviously the French culture is uh, uh, similar to Australia in that way. Yeah, my um, my business partner last year, 
well, he still lives in South Korea now, but he's he's Korean born and he had to do a year of armed service as well. And he, he used to say like, you know, whenever we'd be, you know, like running out of money or we wouldn't have a house to stay in the next day while we were trying to hustle this product out the door, he'd be like, yeah, you know, there's, this is nothing compared to being in the army, man. Exactly. <laughs> and I've, you know, when I'm, and, we, and we try to push both on managed flutter and melon. We try to push hard sometimes and you know sometimes if i'm talking with one of the team and they they're having a rough week or whatever i always just calm them down and say look you know we're lucky we work in a business where no no one dies yeah it's like okay so if we lose users or or a client project doesn't deliver yes not ideal and we certainly don't aim for that but um we're not working in a hospital. We're not. We're not working in an army or something. I, you know, I, I went to hear the the um, founder or the creator of the Iron Dome missile defense system. He was in wow. Sydney a couple of weeks ago, and it's I went to heavy. hear. Yeah, and it was fascinating. I mean, they built this um, this missile defense system. Um, the Americans said they couldn't do it, and they said, "Well, we're going to do it." Um, they had 300 people working on the project. I think they developed it. In, in the first v- version, just in three years or something like that. I've got no idea how that even works. Like, yeah, and, and uh, way under budget. I mean, the Americans have got the Patriot missile system, mm-hmm. so that's their missile defense system. Each Patriot missile apparently is $1 million, <laughs> right? Now, oh, you, now, wow. you can, now you can see how America's <laughs> defense budget, apparently the, um, the, the Iron Dome is only each missile is only sixty to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it's funny how we can say, oh, you know, that's nothing, but still, hundred grand for a missile. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, amazing. Um, it, you know, and and the the stress of this guy, you know, of this missile defense system, um, that was literally not only saving lives. But I believe, um, you know, prevented an escalation of the situation by just, um, um, you know, just dealing with the, the incomings and, and, and anyway, I won't get into, I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole of <laughs> Middle East politics. But I think there was a huge flow of benefits from this, um, this Iron Dome, but the stakes were really high, you know. Yeah, I mean. And, and uh, once you work in an environment, now he's got his own startup and consulting. And I mean, come on, once you deal with that, you know, yeah. not not getting your next round of funding. Well, uh, you at know. least we didn't let a bunch of <laughs> missiles through or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Crazy. So, so here, yeah, you know, these things are interesting to consider. I mean, South Africa was a, a little bit not as dramatic as Israel, but definitely we grew up with um, a lot more going on than Australia. Um, you know, so it's. Um, these things are interesting, and that's why if you are looking at starting a business and just just even challenge yourself, you know, especially if you're young enough to be, you know, yeah, your Resilient. brain's plastic <laughs> enough to sort of learn these things. Just go go travel alone in a crazy place, or you know, I won't say go join an, an army or something, <laughs> but um, you know, just just get used to just dealing with with risk, and um, because I think somehow sometimes when life is is too easy and too good, it's you don't flex that muscle enough. Which is as a startup, you need to be comfortable with risk. You know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the reason why people fail um, is that they they crack under the pressure, or after you know they've spent too long in a situation that's not ideal and it finally gets to them and you know yeah and resilient look resilience can be built up you know it can be built up but you need it but you need to get exposed to it you need practice at it so you know that's that's one thing that um 
you know, I'll definitely encourage you if you are looking at that getting on the roller coaster of the startup side of things is you just you, it, to learn to live with the uncertainty um, it takes practice and it helps having a support system and your friends and your mentors and everything else but um, you know I think Australia that's I mean I think we oversimplify the situation it's like, oh we need to create you know early stage funding more I only think that I think that's only part of the problem mm. you know the early stage funding is easy but that that culture of, of risk taking we're not risk takers no we haven't had to be I mean humans humans if, we would be if we had to be yeah you know we don't, we, we don't have to be my friends in corporate jobs um, are earning 200k a year um, relatively easily they don't have to go and take risks you know South African yeah. corporate jobs were far and few between most people you know had to become some sort of uh, entrepreneurs so um, you've got to also remember that a large percentage of working Australians are shackled to a one million plus dollar eight percent life mortgage. That's, that's true <laughs> as well, which doesn't really allow them the flexibility to quit their job and go out on a limb to do a startup. Yeah, yeah, of course. And look, startups aren't the be all and end all, and it's not everyone's journey. But um, if if someone does want to, you know, do it, that's definitely one of the. Um, Aspect so inter- interesting, yeah. France, I mean, as as Peter's article noted, you know, the French have great developers. They're a little bit too perfectionistic. They don't have oh, that absolutely. hacker, hacker I mean, culture, but they got great developers. Yeah, I mean, if if you know anything about web development, and if you've ever heard of the language PHP, one of if not the most popular frameworks for PHP is Symphony 2, which was it's a French framework written by French developers, and and the majority of the people who support it live and work in France, so. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, the European. I, I I enjoy the European mindset of you know even some of the Scandinavian developers and yeah. everybody's got a different. You know, all the developers bring their own sort of flavor to <laughs> exactly. You know, and these are the Western European mindset compared to the Eastern. Obviously, I'm generalizing and, and I'm certainly not stereotyping, but there's 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 obviously from the education and the culture percolates into mm. the development culture and they've got a very uh, they've got a very measured approach yeah absolutely which, I, I mean, which is quite interesting it varies a lot culture to culture i mean a lot of people don't realize that the language ruby was was um created in japan and, yep. and bitcoin was created by well no by one knows, Japanese. Right? well they assume you know that i mean they're throwing off they they it could also be to throw off from uh, the scent, you it's, know. It's possible, but honestly, the way that Bitcoin's designed and the way that it works, it sort of feels like it's believable that it was created by someone in and Japan. And that found yeah. us, the, the creator of Bitcoin still sitting on a ton of, like, what, half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin Yeah, the, the first wallet um, yeah. is, is still, it's never been used. There's never been a, tr- the, like, no one's ever made a trade out of it. Yeah. So yeah, there's no li- there's no leads on that. That's a whole other thing, though. That's a whole other yeah, story. Like um, we could talk for hours about the mystery of Bitcoin. Read about it on Wikipedia if you get the chance. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, really interesting. It's it's fascinating. And if you want to sort of invest in really long term, um, find some good Bitcoin uh, technology. Well, I don't think there's any of them that are listed yet. They're still private. But yeah. uh, I know Mark Andreessen is very bullish on it, and I, I would uh, back anything he backs. Yeah, we gotta we gotta wait for the first one to go public. I think that'll yeah. be the real the real indication i think yeah anyway that's been episode number 58 of the it's a monkey podcast please tweet us please email us we love hearing from you um i've had a special co-host um nick barker who is uh 
new member of the managed flutter team senior dev and product lead so um if uh, your managed flutter chef, chef. yoga instructor yeah yeah we've all got we've got all got at least 10 roles like i say to <laughs> charles you know he's i've just call him special projects we all special <laughs> projects especially when it's like nine at night and i'm taking the bloody garbage out <laughs> you know or the trash out as they say but that's but that's part of the fun you know so um we'll be back in two weeks um do americans celebrate easter i think they do but i don't think it's such a big deal there yeah i'm not 100 percent sure actually yeah. yeah anyway if you wear if you're in somewhere that celebrates easter um have a good one i'm going to be camping in the middle of the nowhere with no mobile signal and um you know, um, you lots guys, of hippies, lots of hippies and trees and, you know, ukuleles. Yeah, it's probably the closest thing to that Australia has to Burning Man, but not really. It's sort of different. It's Australia's Sm- flavor of it. S- smoldering Man. Yeah, something, <laughs> something like that. So if you're going away, have a have a good break. We'll be back in two weeks. Um, no doubt there'll be lots to talk about and um, have a good one. Cool.